Hello and welcome to the second chapter season four. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy, and I am thrilled to be back with more women over 35 sharing stories of their lives and careers. This little podcast is growing. So a huge thank you to all of our loyal listeners. And if you're new to the podcast, welcome. Have a listen, and then please recommend to a friend. I want to share these stories of amazing women 35 plus with as many people as we can reach. In this episode, I'm speaking with Carol Drinkwater. Carol and I spoke several months ago, but I loved her story as a season opener. Carol began her working life as an actress. She was marked for Hollywood when an assault by a famous director changed her path. Not one to give up, Carol continued her career as an actor, became a highly successful novelist, an olive farmer, environmentalist, and more. I would like to mention that Carol does talk about the abuse in this episode, which might be upsetting to some listeners. However, her story is a story of triumph and joy, so I hope you'll stay tuned. I like pushing the boundaries all the time. I'm not willing to lay down and die just yet. And I think, I think staying and playing safe is, is, not, is not really living. I do love challenging myself and um, seeing what else I'm capable of. Hi, Carol. Thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure. It's a beautiful day here in the south of France. Summer's really walking in. It's come put his steps on the stage now, so it's lovely. Here I am in London. <laughs> Rain again. It has been oh. hideous. So I feel like you're just bragging to me at this point. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, we've had a very turbulent May down here. It's been quite windy and there's been quite a lot of rain, which has been great for all the growth and everything, but not so much for the spirits. Well, I am jealous. I'm not going to be rude, but I am going to be rude because you've done so many things that I'm going to stop with the niceties and jump right into your life, if that's okay with you. Perfect, yeah. So you grew up in a showbiz family, and I think that's interesting because I've interviewed quite a few women who have sort of shied away from acting their whole lives because it wasn't something their family approved of. It was on my father's side. My father was a band leader a musician, an agent, a Punch and Judy man, a Toastmaster. He did everything that was to do with entertainment, entertaining people, getting crowds going, all that sort of thing. And he was with the RAF gang show during the Second World War. He did an act with Peter Sellers, Tony Hancock, those kind of people. So he really tried everything in his time. My mother was an Irish um, nurse later a a sister in a hospital in England. And she didn't really approve of show business, partly because it meant that daddy was often away. And sometimes she didn't know where he was, etc. So I mean, that kind of show business was not on her side. And she didn't really like it and was rather upset when I said that that's what I wanted to do. But then she supported me through, of course, and nobody tried to hold me back. My father, of course, was absolutely proud and thrilled. And when I started doing television and everything, he working with Olivier and stuff like that, he was like the best dad in the world and always putting me forward and saying, this is my daughter and stuff. So from a very, very early age, my uncle was also a musician. My grandparents were in variety. So from the age of about four, you know, I used to do soft shoe shuffles for them in the living room. And they'd encourage my desire to be on the stage to sing. I don't sing at all well. I'm a terrible singer. They very much encouraged all that side. And then I, I said rather grandly, well, I want to be in the more serious theatre, which <laughs> shows my ignorance because it's all of a one, whether you're entertaining with jokes or whether you're speaking Shakespeare, it's all of the same. It takes the same courage, takes the same understanding of crowds, of audience. It's all the same. But I was, I, I was very much influenced by my father's 
background. And sometimes at the weekends, he used to take me to theatres where he was performing. And I'd be in the theatre all day while he was rehearsing with the musicians and things, and it was an empty theatre. And so I really began to love that sense of the expectation of what would be happening at night when the audience came in. And in the day, you'd watch the people rehearsing, building up. You'd watch their nerves build up. It was wonderful to get that sense of the expectancy. And then when the audience came in and things really sharpened up, that was the the buzz of that really got to me. And that got in my blood very early. But even today, that sense of, of feeling an audience and drawing them in and knowing how to work with them is just such a thrill, such a buzz. I love you talking about the the nerves building up and the excitement because as an actor myself, I definitely have stage fright. I am a person who I'm not one of these people that can just go out perfectly calmly. And But I also love performing for a live audience. It's a very strange mix, actually, because it's almost masochistic. Yes. I remember when I was doing theatre, first nights, honestly, you couldn't drag me to the stage. I was so scared. I used to literally hold on to my dressing table in the dressing room, all costumed up and made up, knowing that it was the five and that it was counting down. And I thought, I just cannot do this. I can't do it. And then, of course, of course, you have to because you're there and you have to. Someone will drag you out. Yeah, someone will drag you out of the dressing room. Once you get on the stage, you step on the stage and there's that terror, real, real sharp-edged terror. There's no doubt about it. And then once you're out there, it begins to ease. Dr. Theatre, we call it. It begins to, and the material and the other actors and the role that you're playing and your intentions as an actor and the the, the the quiet and the attention of the audience and their expectation all begins to take over. And then it's just wonderful. Then you remember why you're doing this, why you're putting yourself through this hell, because suddenly it all it all kind of coalesces and comes together and it's wonderful. The night's when it goes really well. That's gorgeous. Yes. And same with television, though you don't get that sense, of course. You can't you can't feel the audience in the same way. But you get and, and writing books the same, you get the response later. And that's also great too, you know. From your acting career, you're known as Helen. I know every article about you, everything says Helen from All always Creatures Great. Right. Yeah, yeah. Always mentions it. So that transition to television, or was it a transition? Was it something that both were happening simultaneously? When I left drama school, my very, very first job out of drama school was with Stanley Kubrick in The Clockwork Orange. It was only two lines, but still it was. And I didn't realize then what an absolute classic film it would turn into iconic film that it would become. But nonetheless, it was screen rather than theatre was my very, very first job. So I immediately had the opportunity, A, and of working with one of the greatest masters of the craft. And it's the only time in my entire career where I have worked with a, a, a crew where every single person in the crew said Stanley could do my job better than I can. I've never, ever heard a crew say that. And Without exception, they were saying that. So the respect for him and the acknowledgement that he really was a master was a wonderful. I thought, from here on upwards. <laughs> and he did indeed. He took his, his sense of detail. Two lines I had, and I waited all day in Milton Keynes to deliver my two lines as a nurse. The attention he gave to me when it came to my turn to, to go onto the set and 
what he asked me, how he thought I could contribute. I mean, it was astounding. So it, it certainly was a great benchmark for me, though, of course, I didn't know it at that time. But looking back now, I can see how he dealt with everybody and the time and, and, and patience and generosity he gave to each crew member. Each tiny, tiny role was a really good lesson for me, which, of course, took me some time to understand. To go back to the question, I began with the screen, television or film, rather than theatre. And then I went to the theatre. I went to work at the National, which is, I'd been working backstage at the National before I went to drama school. And then I went back as an actress, which was a bit strange because there were lots of the same people there. And it was only kind of like four years on, my three years at drama school, and then doing a bit of other work like with Stanley. And then I went back to the National. So I'd all, I already knew because... I was working in the wardrobe department before I went to drama school with a wonderful drunken wardrobe mistress. She had to be a character one day. It was a little adorn to, to, to Larry. You know, it's this great cloak for Sir Lawrence Larry to play Othello. He had this huge white cloak. And of course, he was all blacked up. That wouldn't happen today, but it did then. And he always had the one whiskey before he went on. He said just the one. He said that, that made for him that transition between the terror and the ability to walk on the stage, just the one small, neat whiskey. And he always had it with a little bit of his, his, Chris, his dresser, always prepared it for him. And it was there waiting, and he would sip at it. And I was given the job of bringing him his cloak, which, of course, had to be cleaned every day because all that black makeup and sweat and everything came off onto it. So he had this, as I walk in with that, and, and he would always chat to me. He was always great. And then I was back a little bit later in the company. So uh, I had the two, I had two, Absolutely astounding openings to my career, Stanley Kubrick and Larry Olivier. It doesn't get <laughs> much better than that. And this is all by the time I'm 23. So I was extremely fortunate with my early opportunities. You've said so many iconic things already. I'm just sitting here. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Speechless as the word instead of the sound. So as far as Helen, obviously it was something that, that you were considered an, an iconic role in your career. Uh, yes, I do think of it. You know, one of the things about the reason I left the show, let's, let's begin there. The reason I left the show was because I felt that Helen was, she, when we were rehearsing, I used to say when it came to a certain line in the script, I used to say, well, guys, I'll just reheat that old tea bag again. Because James would pour out his heart and Helen would go, well, that's all right, dear. I'll just put the kettle on. And I used to say, come on, give this woman some, <laughs> some balls, some, some backbone. The real Helen, Joan, Alf White's wife, who's J Alf White is the real James Herriot. The real Joan was a formidable figure. I was terrified of her. And when I first met her, she put a photograph on the table in front of me and said, that's what I look like when I was your age. Live up to that. And great, you know, I mean, she didn't want Helen to be turned into some kind of soft background figure. And that was a big fight I had with the BBC all the time. Give her something to do that is her own, not just waiting for James to come home and soothing him. I said, give me a bicycle and a Red Cross job or something. But they said, no, 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 it's not in the scripts. It's not in the books. But in fact, if they read the books, they would see that the real Helen was really quite something. She didn't get married in white. The series, we, we had to have a white wedding. She wore trousers all the time. The very, very first time I wore trousers on screen, they were inundated with letters saying only tarty girls wore trousers back then, which was nonsense. Helen 
Joan was the first girl in her village to wear trousers. And she was out there. She was a young, feisty woman. It was an iconic role in one way. And in another way, it was constantly necessary for me to say to the BBC, let's move it, give her more space, give her more power. Not to take over the show, but if you're going to have one woman out, out of a quartet, then make that woman someone who speaks up, who cares about what's going on. I hate that they we're still battling getting more three-dimensional characters for women in TV and films. It's, and you mentioned that this has been something you've been fighting your whole life. And I've been fighting my whole life in my books, in my novels now. Almost all my characters is an 80-something-year-old French actress who was abused by a film director mm -hmm. when she was very young in, in my novel, The Lost Girl, based on my own experience, which we can talk about. My other characters are a 60-something actress, a woman in her 40s whose daughter's gone missing because she was away working and the father was at home out of work and blah, 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 and because she was away working, she was held responsible for the fact that the girl went missing. My publisher said she can't be away working like that. And I said, she's away working like that. I'm not changing it. You know, I had to fight even that, my own story. So uh, this idea that women's place is in the home <laughs> or the background, no, sorry, but no. And, and this, is, this really is our ongoing battle. It really is. And a very, very important one. And women are delivering some of the best performances and the best production companies, if you were talking prime TV and film now, the best material that's out there. There's no reason for anyone to say this shouldn't be. It, it's not, it, it is commercial. Women want to watch it. Women read the books. There's a big thing going on in the publishing world right now that white men are being overlooked. Well, guys, you had your turn. <laughs> you know, and you didn't leave a lot of space for the rest of us. Women right now are writing great material and women are reading that stuff. And that's as it should be. <laughs> Sorry. There's plenty of place for white middle-class men. They're still writing. They're, they were having this discussion. I said, listen, look at the books that are at the top of the charts. Richard Osmond, Osmond, I think his name is, Matt Haig. I have nothing against those books. I haven't actually read either of those two new ones. But they're still there at the top. What are they moaning about? And believe it or not, despite the fact that we are men or women or whatever gender roles we identify with, a woman can read a book a man wrote. Why can't men write, I know. read books about women? <laughs> Though I must say my Olive Farm series of books, is, I have quite a lot of male reader followers from, from those Olive Farm books. I'm not quite sure why about me coming to live over here. I don't know why, but they have an enormous amount of male followers. So that's good. The novels, when I say, well, why don't you start reading the novels? They, they say, oh, well, you know, uh, I say, go on, give the novels a go. And usually they enjoy them. But it, there is a reticence, a novel written by a woman. And oh, I don't think that's for me. It's a thinking. And it's basically because they haven't read them <laughs> that they say that. They don't actually know what they're refusing. I don't know. Anyway, I don't want to knock all men because I'm certainly not against men. I love men. We also have the right to be right alongside them. Yes. And in real life, I have to say my boyfriend is the one who almost always makes the tea. So <laughs> <laughs> you did mention The Lost Girl, though, about how it was based on one of your own experiences. And it's something that I want to talk about a little bit, because after this wonderful experience with Stanley Kubrick, you had a opposite experience when it comes to Elliot Kazan. 
And it was something I know that took you a long time to come forward with, a long time to write about. And if you're happy to speak about that and how it turned into kind of a novel. Yeah, of course, I'm happy to speak about it because A, I've written about it now, uh, not just, uh, I've written about it in the novel, The Lost Girl, and I've also written several articles. I was interviewed for The Guardian and someone wrote the article and I wrote a, a long essay piece for Weekend Mail about my experience. It was an absolutely ghastly experience and it took me 40 years to speak out about it 40 years um i was slated to go to america and work with robert de niro on on the last tycoon which harold pinter had written and i knew harold i'd work with harold but then i'd work with harold and sam sam spiegel was my he was we became great friends sam and i and then Eli Kazan, who they called Gadge, came to London. He already had in mind who he wanted for the role. He wanted a model who was in New York, who in fact did play the role. And he came to London and they, well, Sam and Harold had, had weaned out masses and masses of actresses and it was down to two. Lisa Harrow, my mate Lisa Harrow and me. She had a screen test in the morning and mine was the afternoon. And um, I'd been working for... I'd worked a lot with Harold, and this is not against Lisa. I've, I've spoken this out loud, and Lisa knows this. At the time, I was told that I was the favourite of the two. True or not, I don't know. That's what was said. I know that Sam very much wanted me for the role, and so did Harold. And then Kazan came to London, and he took against me pretty much immediately, I think, or decided he didn't want me anyway for whatever reason, aside from the fact that he wanted this other girl. So he went through this, this charade of working with me for two weeks on the script, which I'd already done with Harold for some months. And I was at Sam's offices every morning. I went every morning at nine o'clock to work with Kazan. And every single morning, he tried to sexually assault me, touch me, breathe on me, push me up against the wall with his erection. And I was... 24, 25 maybe. Now, 24, 25 back then was not quite the same as 24, 25 now. I was a, a young, not an experienced young woman in terms of my sexuality. I'd had a couple of relationships, but nothing really. And, and also I had trained as a method actress. So he was my god because he was famous for his work. He, he worked at the method school in New York and that was how he worked with actors. So when he said, he kept saying to me, show me passion. So, you know, I'd learned the script. I had the, the whole text there and I would start to say something, some of the lines in. He would shout at me, no, I want you to show me passion. And I thought, does he mean that I'm to get very emotional, more emotional with the text or what does he mean? And then he'd throw me against the wall and start breathing down my, oh, it was, anyway, it went on and on and on for two weeks. And every morning I went in more and more terrified Every morning I thought that he was going to actually rape me and each day I'd go out shaking, absolutely shaking. Then we came to the screen test, which was out at one of the big studios. I can't remember, Pinewood perhaps. Lisa had done the morning. I got to the, uh, the uh, some big limo, picked me up at my little flat in Kentish Town and I got out to the studio and I thought to go into makeup and the makeup artist said, Mr. Kazana said, no makeup for you. Well, you as an actress will know how vulnerable that makes you feel if you're about to do the, the screen test of your life for the biggest role that everyone said I was tipped for and then I'm told I'm not having any makeup. And I said, but why is that? And she said, I don't know, but I just have to follow instructions. So I went into my dressing room and did a bit of kind of handmade makeup. And, and then there was a knock on the door and it was a chaise long in the dressing room. There was a knock on the door and it was Kazan. 
I forgot to say that I already knew Robert De Niro because I, for, for a very different reason, I was going to do a film with Bertolucci in Italy and I met him there. So not knowing that this was going to come up between us because at the time Dustin Hoffman was going to play the, the role in The Last, the Last Tycoon. So uh, Harold Pinter was reading in for, for Bob who couldn't be there and he was waiting on the set for me to come out and we were going to do it together and the only other person there was the cameraman who'd done the morning slot with Lisa. So Kazan came into my dressing room, closed the door, locked the door, literally pushed me onto the chaise long and got on top of me. And I said, please, please get off. What to do? And he started pulling at my clothes and pulling at my hair and saying, F-U-C-K, me, and da-da-da-da-da, and all this was going on. And I was absolutely petrified. I thought he was going to rape me there and then. Anyway, I managed to get him off me, and I managed to get him. I don't know how, but I did. I somehow managed to get him off me and out of the room. So when I got on the set, I was called to the set, I was... I'm shaking now, just thinking about it. I was shaking like a leaf. And I was meant to do a short scene with, with Harold to get us going before. It was a huge two-page monologue. My character had to speak at some point. He said, well, go straight into the monologue. And Harold said, why do you want to do that, Gadge? Why don't we do it as we did it with Lisa this morning? He said, because this is the way I want to do it. He wanted to unnerve me, of course. The cameraman said, I, well, we've set it up for the other. He said, well, reset it up this way. So both Harold and the cameraman were bemused. So he put me straight where he said, that's your spot. You effing stay there, he said to me in my ear. Put me on my spot. So I was about to have to do a kind of 15 minute or whatever it was monologue as the opening to the screen test. And he came up and whispered in my ear, went so the others couldn't hear. I want to. I kind of froze. I just didn't know how to respond. I didn't know whether or not to shout at him and say, because this was my biggest chance. I didn't know what to do. So he kept this up for about an hour, giving me notes out loud or messages or, or, or you know, uh, directions out loud. And then in my ear whispering something, what he thought was salacious. And I got so frightened. Harold could see that I was falling to pieces. And Harold had worked with me for a long time and really was gunning for me to get this role. I just knew then. I just fell to pieces. Nobody could understand. I think the other two thought, or certainly the cameraman thought, where did they get this hopeless person from? Anyway, finally it was all over. The humiliation was all over. And I got back to my dressing room and I called my agent. That evening I had a phone call from Kazan. He was staying at the Connaught. He rang about nine o'clock at night. And he, in fact, I think they'd taken Lisa to the theater. I don't know. Anyway, he rang about nine o'clock. He said, hi, it's Gadge here. And I said, hello. I was still shaking. I'd been crying my heart out from the moment I got home. I said, I didn't get the role, did I? And he said, no, of course not. And he said, but do you want to come over to the Connaught and spend the night with me? I just banged the phone down. I spoke to Sam Spiegel about it when Sam came into London a week or so later. Sam said to me, what the hell happened? And I tried to explain to him. And he said, you know what Gadge said to me? And I said, no. He said, I'm going to prove to you that that girl hasn't got the balls for Hollywood. And that's what he tried to do. He tried to annihilate me. And it took me 40 years to... I had, a, I had a letter from Sam, which I have still somewhere, from Hollywood saying it's a disaster, basically. I don't want to knock this lady because she's still alive, the, the one that played... The, well, the whole film was a flop. I think Sam's only really big flop. And Kazan's last film, he never worked again. And anyway, in Kazan's book, they all say when they meet in London, Harold, Sam and him, we should have cast the English girl. 
<laughs> when I read that, I just broke down and cried. I actually wrote to him at one point, as I tried to write about it in a much earlier book. And fortunately, my letter was returned because I think he'd have sued me if he'd received it. And by the time The Lost Girl came out, he was he was dead. So The Lost Girl was very, it was, the character was entirely based on him, the director who rapes this young actress. I mean, I wasn't actually raped, but not, not in the physical sense, the penetrative sense, because I, I fought very hard. But my, the girl in my book is actually raped and is younger than I was. She's 18. Uh, this is the 80-something-year-old actress looking back on her life at this, uh, when she was starting out, not understanding what was... You see, the thing is, you so much want the job. And it, this was a huge, huge opportunity for me. And everyone in London was saying Carol Drinkwater's on her way to Hollywood and blah, blah, blah. And, and Hollywood was what I really wanted. And I look back at my life now and think that I probably would be dead if, or whatever. And maybe I'd be an old, drunken, cancer-ridden actress forgotten in the hills. I don't know. In fact, I've, now, I've had a, an incredibly rich and very independent life. I've been my own person. I've written my own books. So in, in a way, it's probably turned out for the best but who can say you just don't know but it was it was destructive on so many levels I'm so angry I don't even know how to put it into words but here was an older man with so much power who thought I'm going to prove how much power that I can break this young girl down why would he ever I mean it's the same with Weinstein you know all these men have done these kind of things Exactly but why, why do you need to show your power when you have so much already? Yeah. And why do you need to destroy someone who's never done anything to you, who's only looking for this opportunity, who's scared to death because they don't know what it's, how it's going to affect their... Or indeed, what, what is being asked of, of you? I didn't understand what was being asked of me, whether he was asking me to literally physically sleep with where he was, of course, or he wouldn't have given me the job even if I'd slept with him. That's the bottom line fact of it. He wouldn't have given me the job even if I'd done what the hell he was asking because he didn't want me for the role. He wanted this model in uh, this Ingrid Bolting. And I have nothing against Ingrid Bolting. She lives in, in L.A. now, and, but she wasn't great in the role. That is a fact, and everyone who's seen the film, she wasn't an actress. She was a model. Mm -hmm. Now, some models make that transition, like Charlize Theron, and they're wonderful. In this case, in this particular film, maybe if she'd done a different film, it would have been another story. But in this particular film, it didn't work, and the film flopped. I'm not saying that I would have been a star in Hollywood had that played out differently. I'm not saying anything. I can't possibly know. But what I do know, no one has the right to do that, to... To, to screw with someone else's mind and emotions, never mind their career. And, and for absolutely no reason than just getting off on being an asshole, think, really. Yeah, I think so. When they gave him that award, I watched it on the television, when they gave him that Lifetime Achievement Award, and some people stood and some people didn't. I, was, I could have smashed the television. <laughs> I could have smashed the television. Because he did so much damage to so many people. He was a great director. Well, put it, he, he produced some wonderful pictures. How he got there to produce those pictures, I don't know. And what cruelty he, he might have laid on, on some of his actors or, or crew, I have no idea. But I, I strongly believe that no one has the right to be cruel to others 
to gain a performance. We are actors, and our job is to deliver the goods. I don't need to be screwed, fucked, bullied, shouted at. I am an actress, and I... If you don't think I can do the job, as he clearly didn't, then don't give me the job. But if you do work with people, don't screw with their minds and their emotions. I think it's immoral, absolutely immoral. Definitely. People have gotten away with it for so long, but I think it's so important that even if it's 40 years later, people are speaking out, women are saying it's enough. And I'm, I am glad when you're talking about your life that you're saying you've gone on to live this really rich life, but it clearly has been something that has been a, a sort of never ending, just like you said, damage. The damage is still there. However, I'm a strong person. And as a strong person, I know I most certainly could have handled Hollywood. I would have learned my way to get through it. Like you learn your way to get through anything. There's no, he had no right to say I couldn't handle Hollywood, but he doesn't know what I could or couldn't handle. I would have got there, understood it, etc. like anybody does with a new experience. And as I have done with my writing, with my travels, with my going around the Mediterranean in war zones, nobody told me how to behave in a war zone. I learned it as I went along when I was in these places. And I'm a strong human being, thank God, because it could have destroyed me. It certainly killed off certain bits of me, there's no doubt about that. But I did go on to have a successful acting career, not as Hollywoodian as it would have been if i done that film. But I I have gone out there and chosen my own independence. And I'm very proud of that. And I wouldn't want that taken away from me for anything. I am my own woman. I choose what I do. Right now, I'm of an age where I'm comfortable. My, my, My mortgage is paid off, those kind of things. So I can now do what I want for myself, what works for me. And that's a very, very privileged place to be. So we've talked a lot, we've mentioned a lot your novels, but a huge part of your career has also been writing, lots of different styles of writing. So I know you started uh, with a a children's book, really, or was it a a children's novel, I should say? Yeah, I've Um, written about five or six or seven books for young adults. I I write for what they call the YA market, the the young adult market. And that's from nine upwards, because at nine you aspire to be 13, and at 13 you aspire to be blah, blah, blah. At that age, you're always craving just to be that little bit more. Now we're all craving to be a little bit that way. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But what started you to put sort of pen to paper? I got my first thing published when I was 10. It was for something called Girl Magazine in England. And I wrote a piece about going to a party and my petticoat falling down. It was something that actually happened to me. And I wrote it as this poor girl's embarrassment and and sent it in. I don't know why. Maybe my parents sent I read it out loud to them. And maybe my mother or something said, why don't you send it in? I don't know. And I used to read Girl Magazine. Daddy used to buy it for me every week. So that was the only address I had. I sent it in and didn't hear anything. And then suddenly out of blue, I got a five shilling poster order in an envelope, <laughs> which was probably compared with what I earn now and inflation, it's probably the best money I've ever <laughs> No, not really, but I was absolutely thrilled. So I think, you know, that you had this uh, revelation to be a writer and started when you're 10 anyway. So much for that. But you, you've done young adults. You've done YA. Sorry, I'm not hip enough. YA. You've done novels. You've written about your experiences living on an olive farm, which we haven't even really talked about yet. Can you tell me a bit about how the olive farm came about? 
The Olive Farm came about because I was filming in Australia and the executive producer, who was French, invited me. He happened to be staying in the same hotel as me and he invited me down to the bar for a drink. And then he said, will you have dinner with me tomorrow evening? And to cut a long story short, we went out for dinner together and before even the first course was delivered to the table, he asked me to marry him. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't take him seriously. And I certainly didn't say yes there and then. I just took a slug of my Chardonnay and I thought, what's this? This is a Frenchman trying to get me into bed, is what I thought it was. And in fact, I saw him at breakfast the next morning and he said, I had a lovely evening. I said, so did I. And he said, but you didn't answer my question. And I said, which question? And he said, well, I asked you to marry me. And I said, well, I didn't actually take you seriously. Anyway, he was leaving that day. I still had work to do in Sydney. And he left and then we stayed in contact and he started ringing every day. And then we started meeting between Paris and London. And and then he was coming down here for the film festival to Cannes. And I'd been looking for about 10 years for all over the world for what I called my house by the sea. And I never, I got gazumped in England. I got, you know, for one reason or another, though some houses were lovely or they were too expensive or whatever, it never it never came together. And then he was down here for the Cannes Film Festival and I started looking while he was busy doing his deals. And then at the end of the week, we looked together and we found this, literally this olive farm, which was a ruin. It was five times my budget. We met the woman who owned it, the richest woman in, in Belgium. We went to see her and Michelle charmed the eyelashes off her. She was a tough, tough businesswoman, but she agreed to sell it to us incrementally. If we gave her some hard cash up front there and then, which is illegal, and I said no. And she said, well, then you don't get it. So I said, all right, then, yes. And cashed in my my life insurance policy. I gave her, I gave her all that. And then we came down here for a summer, and then she said, okay, you can have it, and and we bought it in bits. And it's been a, a wonderful story because actually it really has changed my life, this property. Well, marrying Michelle and the property and everything, because I began to discover the olive tree, the history of the olive tree. I spent 17 months going around the Mediterranean on my own. And that's where I was in war zones and things, um, studying the cultivation of the olive tree, the history of it, the tapestry of the Mediterranean. It's been a wonderful, wonderful experience. And now we're going to do some of it for television. And it just is ongoing. It, it gets richer and deeper. Each, each year I sew another, I sew like a, one of those patchwork things. I put another patch onto it and it, it grows into something else. I wouldn't have had that maybe if I'd gone to Hollywood. There you go. You obviously love olives. <laughs> do you still love olives <laughs> after all this I do time? Still, I, I do still love olives and we produce very fine olive oil. It's not a business. We sell a few bottles, but really not. Before I wanted to have the best olive oil in the world because I'm so damn competitive. Uh, but I've given up on that and I'm much more zen about it now. We pick what we pick. We get what we get. It's organic, which I'm a big fighter for, the bio market, the saving bees and all of that. I, I've been onto all of that for about mm, 20 years now. That's all very important to me, living a life that is in harmony with the planet, taking care of this little patch that, I, that I've been made guardian of by the powers that be up there in the sky, making sure that the bees have water in the summer, that nobody puts poisons on the plants, talking to local beekeepers, all that kind of That's immensely important to me. And I write my books, my novels, and I'm extremely fortunate and um, rewarded. It sounds very idyllic. I have one olive tree. <laughs> it's 
fighting its way through England weather. <laughs> I look at that one olive tree and dream of the day that I can be sitting and writing and looking at my olive farm or something along those lines, because it sounds so idyllic. It sounds amazing. <laughs> I think mine would be in Italy, but other than that, you're you're living the dream. Well, um, I, th- I thought mine would be in Italy. I always thought I'd end up in Italy. So sitting and writing in your, in my mind, idyllic olive farm, tell me about your new novel, which came out in April. Yeah, it's, it's inspired by a true set of events, not a true story. The story is my imagined story, but a true set of events. I was up in the lower Alps behind Nice. This is in the 90s researching something completely different. I think it was something to do with the flora and fauna of the, of the, of the natural park up there, the Mercantour Park. And I was up there and I went into this, this small village town and I discovered, I was wandering around, a really lovely old town, and I discovered that there was a tiny museum there about the size of a cupboard. So I just put my head into this museum and it had things like old-fashioned farming forks and you know, odd bits of old fallen down wheels and things from a cart, that sort of thing in there, um, celebrating the local history of agriculture <laughs> in a cartwheel. And then I saw there were about four or five photographs. So I thought, what's that? And I saw that it, the photographs were very old black and white photographs of people who look slightly foreign and slightly awkward standing in the village, it was clearly in this village, um, being photographed. And, and then I saw that it said Jewish refugees. So I went on and discovered that the story was that here where we are now it was the free zone during the Second World War. The Nazis were over the other side, south and way up in all the north, including Paris and everything, was their zone. We were supposed to be ruled, we being, I wasn't there here then, but the free zone was meant to be ruled by Vichy France, which, as we know, became collaborative pretty much. But this corner, that right down towards Italy, the furthest away from the Nazis or Vichy, was its own thing. Nobody took any notice of whoever anybody was. Nobody cared if you were Jewish or gypsy, homosexual. You could be who you like and live here, and people just minded their own business. So that became known, and a lot of Jews, when they escaped their own countries or escaped Nazi domination wherever they were, found their way down here, and they lived very quietly here. And then in November 1942, the Allies took North Africa. And the obvious step from taking North Africa is that they would move across the Mediterranean through Italy and come in and save France from, from the bottom. There was going to be a two, two-pronged, from Normandy and from down here was the two-pronged um, invasion they intended. So once that became known, the Jews down here suddenly thought that they might not be safe because Hitler said, we're going into the free zone. We need to mm. uh, resist any invasion from the Mediterranean coast. So it meant that suddenly all these Jews, and when I say all these Jews, I'm talking about hundreds of thousands, could not stay here. They wouldn't be safe. And a few villages, some, there were people busy getting them out, getting them to, to, uh, to Palestine, Israel, or getting them to America. All kinds of maneuvers were going out. The French were doing a lot to get them out. And some villages, up, and that included the village where I was when I went into this cupboard museum, said, we'll take some refugees in, we'll hide them, which on pain of death to take them in. Mm-hmm. If the Nazis mm-hmm. found that you ha- were hiding a, a, a Jew or a refugee or a displaced person of one sort or another, it was the firing range straight away. You would be shot immediately. But this vill- this particular village said, we'll take some in. And the village consisted of about 600, 700 inhabitants, local inhabitants. 
And they took in, I think, up to 800 Jews or, or displaced people, mainly Jews. So suddenly the village was more than double in size. I started to investigate the story. And what happened was that these Jews that went inland, who'd been living in basements in these or whatever, wherever it happened to you, or hiding away in houses or whatever, safe, but being remaining discreet, were up there and they could go into the square. They spoke their own language. They spoke Yiddish to other Jews who were from Russia. Or this free, open, and with the locals who made sure that there were signs everywhere so they could find their way around the place, where they could go to shop. Suddenly, this in the middle of a war, these tiny oases of sanity and generosity and diversity came together. So I thought this was the wonderful way for me to begin to tell a refugee story. So I created my own characters. It's, it's the story of a 17-year-old girl and her parents who come from Poland and have been living in Nice, and then they are bussed up to this village and given a house on the outskirts, which has been um, abandoned by an English couple, a rather wealthy English couple, which is what lots of people were buying on the coast and then going inland before the Second World War because it was cooler for the summer months. And that was exactly my makeup couple had done that. So basically, it's the story of a 17-year-old Polish girl. She's on the brink of womanhood. She wants to go dancing. She wants to fall. All the things that somebody of 17 wants to do. But it's wartime, and she's a Jew. So... Uh, you know, it's not given what we all take for granted. Like in this pandemic, we've been before that we took meeting friends, being in the open air, having coffee. We took all that for granted. And that's yes. how we suddenly Sarah, my, my character, Sarah, Sarah, all those things that we have taken for granted, she can't have. And she falls in love with a local boy who's a, a medical student and turns out he's a member of the resistance. So it's Sarah's coming-of-age story, and it's much more than that. It's a refugee story. It's a story of generosity. Of It's a story of people understanding what it takes to stand up for someone else yes. and no one else will. So it's all those things, and, and it, it begins in the present and ends in the present, two very short chapters. And other than that, it's Sarah's story from beginning of 1943 through to a certain point in her life. It's receiving these amazing reviews. It would make a very good film, and I don't just I wrote it with that in mind too. So I'm very, I'm very hopeful or fingers crossed that it might get picked up for film. I it's too soon yet, but it would make a very good film. I don't even think we said the name. The book is called An Act of Love. It was originally called An Illicit Act of Love, but my my editor at Penguin thought that sounded too saucy. <laughs> the word she used. So we took out illicit. But it works as well. And Act of Love works very well because it's an act of love on very many levels. The people are opening their village up. The whole village is at risk of being killed by the Nazis if and when they arrive. That's the other thing is the Nazis are getting closer and closer and closer. So it's an act of love in many senses. But but that's the big that's the big opening act of love, as it were, that these people say that the village actually voted and said, we will take in refugees, which I think is quite remarkable. I also think we just need something like that, to, a knowledge of a story like that in these times, because it does feel, I don't know, I don't know if it's pandemic, I don't know if it's just everything going on in the world, but it's always nice to learn of something that's actually happened where people have just shown that inherently people at heart are good. Their very best selves. You know, yeah. the book is about so many people expressing and offering their very best selves. And that's 
that's to be celebrated. So actress, novelist, olive farmer, <laughs> olive root. Environmentalist. I was just going to say environmentalist, <laughs> saver of the bees. You're working on the TV version for the olive root. So many different things. Is there anything else? What's next? Or have you found the full package? Well, this new thing is, this TV thing is a bit different, but I'm not allowed to talk about that at the moment. But no, I, I like I like pushing the boundaries all the time. I'm not willing to lay down and die just yet. And I think, I think staying and playing safe is, is not, it's not really living. I think that one needs to challenge oneself. That, that I don't really want to go as far as I can't go out of the dressing room. I'm so terrified that I think I'm going to wee, wee myself and not get on the stage and embarrass myself. I don't quite want to go back to that level of fear, but I do love challenging myself and um, seeing what else I'm capable of. And I did read somewhere that you still, when it comes down to it, with everything you've done, obviously very passionate about the environmentalist part, but you still consider of everything that you're an actress. I'm an actress who writes, yes. I, I think uh, I trained as an actress. I grew up wanting to be an actress and, and secretly dreaming of being a writer, but I knew I'd be an actress. So I do think of myself as an actress who writes, writes now more than acts, but you know, I'm still an actress. That's my tribe. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing so many different aspects of your story. I really, really appreciate you joining me and, and telling me about your life so far. So far. Thank you very much. It's been a real, real pleasure. Thank you. A real pleasure. Thank you for asking me, Kristen. Thanks again for listening. The second chapter is just getting started, so your subscriptions and five-star reviews mean so much. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. Plus. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.